The following is a special sports presentation of UltimateSportsTalk.com. High fly ball, way back in center field. It is out of here. A grand slam home run. And this one belongs to the Reds. UltimateSportsTalk.com now presents the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. A comprehensive look at the Cleveland Indians and Cincinnati Reds. For the sixth consecutive season, we examine each team and their progress through the 2016 Major League Baseball season. And now, the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show for the September 19th as we wind down the regular season of 2016. 16 between the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. And, boy, you can talk about polar opposites right now. Unfortunately, boy, pitching is going to be the big story tonight, not only for the Indians, but for the Reds. And in order to talk about that, we've got to go down south and bring on our resident Reds expert, Mark Donahue. Mark, before we get into tonight's show, OH. I.O. There we go. Buckeyes, big win on Saturday night. And we're going to get into, not the Buckeyes, but we're going to get into what I had a very enjoyable experience at Great American Ballpark this past Saturday, watching the Reds play the first game of a doubleheader against Pittsburgh. We're going to talk about that. I'm going to compare it to Progressive Field, Mark, and what I think. We're going to talk about the radio coverage that the Indians do not get up here in the Cleveland area. We're going to talk about all that and more, but I guess we got to start out with what has happened to the Cleveland Indians' once-vaunted pitching staff is now down to Corey Kluber, Trevor Bauer, and a bunch of people that nobody have heard after their second and third pitchers in their rotation, Mark. Carlos Carrasco and Danny Salazar have gone down. Boy, you cannot be hit by the injury bug this late in the year and still expect to win a World Series, can you? Well, uh, let's analyze that for a second, David, because I, I think you may be spoiled a little bit by the remainings of your pitching staff. Uh, Corey Kluber, to start off with, is certainly an ace by anybody's standard. Has to be in the top five, top ten for sure. Of, of starting pitchers, so that that gives you that that number one guy that you can go to, and I, I think the biggest concern would be uh, in a five game series as opposed to a seven game series. If, if you guys get into the World Series, you you could see Kluber pitch as many as three times in a World Series, depending on the scheduling. What I'd be concerned about is in a three game or five game series when you don't have him, you might have him for two games. Uh, but, you know, with, with, if, if um, Tomlin comes back and, and, and shows that he's the kind of pitcher that he was many times this year and last year, you do have a good one-two punch there. And it, it, who's, who's your other pitcher, the number three guy? Trevor Bauer. Yeah, we've talked about Trevor Bauer for the last five years. <laughs> he's got number one starter arm. Uh, and I think he certainly improved this year from the numbers I've seen, at least uh, looking at it uh, from afar to some degree. But I don't think your pitching staff is as weak as you might fear, although Carrasco clearly uh, is another top ten guy in your rotation that he's going to be missed. 
but with your bullpen, I don't think it, it may be as dire as as you might originally think. Would it be easier to have uh, Carrasco in that rotation with Corey Kluber? Absolutely, uh, you, you're better, but I don't think the cupboard is bare. And uh, you know, in, in many times, this is when players step up, and, and and I think Trevor Bauer, ironically, may be the key to your entire postseason fortunes. Well, we've got cuts from both managers as far as how their pitching is going right now. And Terry Francona, after Saturday's loss to Carlos Carrasco, I mean, it was the second pitch of the game, Mark. It was a line drive right back at him. He just instinctively put his hands down to cover himself up, turned his body a little bit to the left, and the ball hit him right on the right pinky finger. He is definitely out for at least eight weeks, which means he's done for the rest of the season. Danny Salazar probably out at least until the second round of the playoffs if the Indians can get that far. Right now the Indians are slated to play whoever comes out of the American League East. So we'll see who that ends up being, either Boston, Baltimore, or Toronto in the first round, should the Indians win the Central, which I would assume they're probably going to do. But Terry Francona talked after the game about what the Indians plan to do with their pitching staff from here on out. It hurts, but it, it, it's, it'll make this more challenging, what we're trying to do. But at the same time, when we do it, I think it'll feel all that much better. So, you know, it's it's certainly, like I said, it's another challenge, but I we feel like we'll figure it out. You know, Tomlin was going to throw a sim game on Monday because we we're going to back him up a little bit, but now he he'll probably start on I think Thursday. So, but we'll we'll go back and look at some things and see where we can put it together. That'll help a little bit, but then we'll 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 get on and we'll figure it out. Mark, the key, I would think, for the Indians is it doesn't matter who pitches for that day. Starts. That starting pitcher has got to get them at least into the sixth inning so the Indians can go to that bullpen. Yeah, I agree. And this is the kind of thing where I think a manager has to be strategic. Uh, let's say you, you, you start Kluber in game one and you build up a big lead early. You know, at that point... Does it make sense to take him out in the in the fifth or sixth inning, bring your bullpen in, and save him, and maybe he he could start the fifth game as well or the fourth game. So those kinds of things will go into the equation that Francona and his staff will look at, and it it is more challenging. But again, I, the cupboard is not bare in Cleveland, and the bullpen will probably play a bigger role. And Again, if Tomlin can can give you six or seven innings, that would certainly preserve that bullpen. But uh, it, it means every start now becomes much more important. If you had Carrasco in there, even if Kluber had a bad start and, and got beat around in the first game, you know you had Carrasco coming back as number two. I mean, that's that that was a real strong one-two punch. But it doesn't mean you don't have the ability to go in there and and win a series. And uh, save your pitching staff uh, because whoever you take on in the East, uh, you know, I, I think it's I think it's going to be Boston. But uh, you you look at that that offense Boston has, and that's going to be a challenge for anybody. So uh, that would probably be the biggest challenge that you guys have is taking on the Red Sox compared to Toronto. Although Toronto, you know, their offense is almost as powerful. Uh, that's going to be a big challenge. 
for you guys uh, to, to to take on that kind of offensive juggernaut, no matter who it is, uh, with a reduced pitching staff. Yeah, I mean, right now Boston is leading the American League East by three games over Baltimore, four games over Toronto. And let's face it, Mark, it's a better story if Cleveland plays Boston anyway because of Francona. Yeah, from a fan's perspective, that's the one I'd like to see. Uh, from Cleveland's perspective, I think Baltimore would be easier to beat. Uh, but, uh, you know, it doesn't, you know, you're, you're going to have a challenge. Those teams that get to the playoffs now, they're all good. There's no weak teams making the playoffs, not in baseball. So you're going to be facing a tough team. But, again, if you can get through that first round, I think the loss of Carrasco will be less noticeable in a seven-game series. And we'll take a look at the wild card standings coming up here in just a little bit. And then another injury that hit the Indians out of the blue. Jan Gomes looked like he was ready to come back, Mark. He had bounced back from that separated shoulder that he sustained in the early part of August. The Indians were set to bring him up on Friday. And on Wednesday night, he got hit by a pitch in a rehab game down in Columbus, broke a bone in his wrist, and he's out for the year now. So it just keeps piling on and piling on as far as the Indians are concerned. Do you really think Gomes, you know, the last time I saw Gomes play, I think he was one for 35 or something like that. He couldn't uh, have been any worse. Yeah, I mean, he, he was really, he had bottomed out. I mean, yeah. do you really think he was going to add that much uh, coming back to this team, given the year he has had so far? Mark, I'm looking at the glass being half full rather than half empty, and I think that the break away from baseball for him probably was good because it gave him a chance to just get away from what he was doing and get back to the fundamentals of swinging the bat and and figuring out what was happening there. I was really looking forward to him coming back because he couldn't have been any worse than Jimenez and Perez were as far as being at the plate. Now, behind the plate, he was going to be an improvement. But at the plate, he couldn't have been any worse than those two were. So I was looking forward to him coming back. But now he's definitely out, so they'll go with Perez and Jimenez for the rest of the year. Mark, as far as the Indians are, or the Reds are concerned, I'm sorry. Boy, their pitching has really hit like the wall in this second half, hasn't it? It has, and, and injuries keep coming up. And I think there's a bigger issue at play here. The, the issue with Homer Bailey is going to have a ripple effect throughout this organization for years to come. Uh, there are rumors out there and, and, and speculation that his arm may never come back. That he had, people forget he didn't have one surgery last year. He had two. And that is that is really tough to come back from, and you know Homer Bailey in his. Do you have any idea how many games he has won in his career, without taking time to look it up? Is it even over a hundred? It's sixty-six. That's okay. all the games he's won. He, he's he's barely a five hundred pitcher. He has two no hitters, but the, you know the, the the Reds invested what nineteen million dollars over six or seven years in this guy, and. <laughs> With 66 wins, he's not even, you know, he's not even in the top 500 of Reds pitchers in history. He's just, uh, and now with, with as much of the payroll tied up with him, upwards of $20 million a year for a guy, and it's possible he will not pitch again. And if he does pitch, he was supposed to be fully healed this year. He's only been in six games, and he missed almost all of last year. For him to come back next year is a dice roll at best, 
that he's going to be effective if he comes back. So I wish they would shut him down now, get him back into a strengthening rehab program, because right now this guy cannot pitch in a major league game. And Why is there even any discussion about letting him pitch again this year? Just because shut they, him down. Well, they should. I think from uh, there's a number of arguments there. You, you want to find out uh, if he is suffering an injury, and sometimes injuries can can be under the surface that you don't know that you've got them until you go out there and stress your arm. So I think what they're trying to find out is we want you to go out and throw 90 pitches in a game or 100 pitches in a game. If there's a problem, let's get it fixed in the off season. Let's not wait until spring training to come back and have you throw 90 pitches. And, oh, by the way, I've got a problem now. It's going to take me out for 2017. So I think the argument is let's find out in September what uh, the issue is or what a problem could be, not in April of next year. So that's, you know, I think that's the idea. But if his arm is so bad that he can't even go out there now and pitch five or six innings, uh, there is something amiss with that arm that, uh, you know, could mean this guy could be done. And, you know, that that's not hyperbole. I mean, he, he's got two major surgeries in the last 12 months that he has not recovered from yet. And the question is, is he going to ever recover? Well, Mark, you and I discussed this about a month or so ago about my feeling is why not just put Homer Bailey as your closer, even if it's for a year. Let's see what goes on with him as a closer for this team. I know Singrani has been handling most of the closing duties since the All-Star break and has done a decent job of it. But, man, if you got a Homer Bailey, you got to find a way for him to earn that salary. Yeah, I mean, I think the bullpen is a good idea for him. A lot of pitchers have come back from that. A lot of pitchers have gone to the bullpen after being starters or reverse. And the question will be, as a, as a closer, though, you're you're throwing max effort out of that bullpen. You're throwing – I mean, I'm sure Hummer Bailey – I mean, he, I remember last year or a year before him throwing 97, 98 miles an hour in the ninth inning. So he certainly has the arm strength and power. If he wanted to throw 100 miles an hour, 101, I'm sure he could for an inning. But the question is, does that kind of stress on the arm make it even more problematic for a guy to be effective out of the bullpen? If you want, you want a guy coming in there throwing gas, and he cruises at 93, 94, 95. That's his safe his safe zone. Now, can he gas it up there more? Sure, he can. But is, does that put added pressure on your arm? Or is it added pressure on your arm to go out there and throw seven, eight, nine innings at 94, 95? And, and a lot of guys can throw all day at that speed. That, that doesn't hurt their arm. The other thing is when you're in a closer role, every inning you pitch is a stressful inning. You're coming in with a one-run lead. You're coming in with a two-run lead. Maybe you're coming in with guys on base. Who knows? Uh, it's, it's Every pitch is a stressful pitch. So those are things that the coaching staff are going to have to figure out in terms of how do you how do you handle Homer Bailey? But you're right. I, I would consider if there's a problem, if there's something they're concerned about, why not let him pitch in, in the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth inning? You know, depending on, on the situation, and build that arm strength up. But if if there's if there's a concern now about Homer Bailey, <clears throat> in answer to your question, I think the Reds would like to find out if. There is a problem, and the only way you do that is you get him out there and let him pitch. And are there? I know they're thinking about shutting him down, but if they do decide to pitch him again, when will that be? 
what would have to be in the next two weeks. Uh, right. I, I was probably thinking this, this, if they're going to pitch him once, I think they ought to pitch him twice or three times. Uh, if you don't, if you don't, you don't throw him out there for one time because you, you've got to find out if he has, if he can come back from a start. I mean, I, I'd start him in the next, I'd start him in Chicago. I'd let him go four or five innings, see how he feels. If that's okay, let him go seven or eight next time out. And then maybe pitch the last day of the season and, and see how it goes. And if he comes out of there with no, with no problems, then you can look forward to him being a contributor at least at the beginning of 2017. But if you don't pitch him, it's going to be a huge question mark about what he can bring to the table next year as a starting pitcher for this team. And, and if Homer Bailey cannot be depended on, that is going to impact greatly what the Reds do in the offseason because they're going to have to go out and get another pitcher. Well, like we talked about, the pitching for the Reds has not been up to par since the All-Star break. And after the doubleheader on Saturday, Brian Price talked about why. Yeah, yeah, it's not not up to standard, as you can tell. You know, we've given up a lot of runs in this series, um, in large part because we're not throwing it over the plate with the consistency that we need. We've been starting rallies with the walks. We've been extending rallies with the walks. You know, it just... Uh, 19 walks in two games um, makes for a slow tempo, makes for a lot of negatives, and uh, you know it's 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 time and time and uh, or throughout the season there's been times where you know where we've really been able to collect ourselves and really pound the strike zone and work ahead and, and do that, but when we're not, we're vulnerable to games like this. Being behind early, add-on runs that really put the game out of reach, and uh, certainly need to uh, to pitch better and expect better. Mark, I was down there for game one of the doubleheader on Saturday. Anthony DiSclafani came in and pitched his first game in about two weeks. They they bypassed his start on Monday and put him back to this first game just because he had a little shoulder stiffness uh, earlier in the week. I thought he threw the ball extremely well, Mark, but again, we got to talk about the umpiring. I'll tell you what, the home plate umpire on Saturday in that first game was not very forgiving in the first few innings, and DiSclafani really had to struggle with the lack of strike calls by that home plate umpire, and in essence, he threw a lot of pitches that were needless, and his defense didn't help him at out at all in that first game either. Yeah, I think you're not going to see uh, Brandon Phillips make two errors <laughs> in an inning very often. Uh, but DiSclafani is a guy that I think the Reds can depend on. And the, the big question mark, getting back to Bailey and the impact it has on the staff, I think if Bailey is unable or they cannot depend on him for sure to come in and pitch, uh, I think you might see Rocio Iglesias move into the starting rotation or Lorenzen or both. So those are the kind of decisions that are out there, and the, the Reds' improvement in the second half this year, I think, can be traced directly to Iglesias and Lorenzen. They had pitched very well, ERAs and the low twos. Uh, they still have, you know, they're young guys, uh, so they're going to make some mistakes, but they have the stuff, and they, they can really be the the underpinning of a bullpen if you have great starting pitching at the top of the rotation. And, you know, the Reds are going to have to go out and find out whether it's going to be Bailey or somebody else they're going to have to trade for uh, or, or sign as a free agent to stabilize that starting rotation. So, um, you know, Brandon Finnegan, uh, he pitched, uh, I think, the second game of that doubleheader. I don't know if you saw him yes. pitch or not. But he threw 80 pitches in three innings. I mean, and then the guy, after the game, he's interviewed by a reporter, 
and he said he had great control and great stuff. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Are you on drugs? How can you throw 80 pitches and say you have great command uh, of your pitches? You don't. So I'm not convinced that Brandon Finnegan is a guy that you can rely on next year to be number three or number four in your rotation. And number five, it's clearly up in the air who it's going to be. I mean, you're assuming that Dan Straley can repeat what he's done this year. Was he 13 and eight now? He's pitched very well. But he, he, you know, he's had some loosey goosey starts the last two or three times out. He's won, but he has not pitched exceptionally well. This Scafani, frankly, has been up and down. He can be very dominant, and right now he's a 500 pitcher in my mind. So there's a lot of unanswered questions, the, the, the greatest being <clears throat> what happens with Homer Bailey, but the ripple effect this has to really throughout the organization, all the way down to AA, uh, is, is, is very impactful. And Amir Garrett, as an example, would be a guy – that I, I could see coming up and, and making a stab at this rotation. But if he doesn't, he would be a stud out of the bullpen. And uh, Singrani is a laugh a minute. I mean, he can come in there and be, uh, you know, very effective. But I think somebody said in his appearances this year, this is an amazing statistic, if accurate, that in 16 appearances he's made this year, he's walked the first guy he's faced. And he's supposed to be a closer. And that is a kiss of death. He doesn't have overpowering stuff. And that's the problem. I, I, I see Singrani as a, a, as a better starter than reliever, frankly. So th- this pitching staff, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of ifs over the, over the offseason that have to be addressed. And uh, Homer Bailey is the top of the list. Well, before we get into this, this Indian story, and how upset they are, and that'll lead me into bashing Cleveland Radio again, but to a more severe extent here tonight. Mark Brian Price was ejected for arguing a replay decision on Saturday night. Now, when I was down there for Game One, they had one uh, replay that took over four minutes, and. You know, I don't really care about the length of ball games. You and I have discussed this, and we think it's much ado about nothing. If you really want to cut down the length of the games, cut down the length of commercials that you have between innings. You and I both agree on that. But I'm here to say that if you have got a replay back in New York that takes them more than a minute to try to decide which way the call should go, then there should be just throw your hands up in the air and say, let's just leave it with the, the guys that were closest to it. If, if you really, it's supposed to be clear cut. That's the way I've always heard it. It's supposed to be evidence showing that the call should be overturned. If it takes you more than five or six looks at this over a minute to see if there's evidence to show that the play should be overturned, then just leave it the way it is. Well, I don't think you can put a time limit on it. I think what they could do to make it more effective is have Major League Baseball, just like they have a, a scorer in, in every ball game, an official scorer, have an official replay official. And it's it's amazing when you see the replays as a fan, and you see it even on a big screen, I'd say 95 to 98% of them, you can tell immediately that either they got it right or he missed it. You right. get a super slow-mo, yeah, the guy's out or he's safe. Everybody, you, know, you hear 30,000 people yell, yeah, it's the guy's safe. So that is 
if you have somebody right there replaying it immediately and, and then if there's a challenge having a, a light yes or no or confirm or out you could do it in a minute I, I think they spend way too much time analyzing it that I mean there may be situations that are more rule interpretive than it is safer out and let's face it the number of plays that are reviewed I would say that, and I don't know this to be the case but I would say 75% of them are out or safe calls at first base. Right. That's I, I would agree with you on that. The, the most predominant. You might have some at second on a steal. But then, aside from that, the, 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 how many times do you have a questionable home run call? Not very often. Uh, you know, you don't have many home run calls that are challenged because not, not that many go down the line. And sure, that might take a little more time to get that right, but those plays are really rare. But the, the, again, 75, 80% of all the calls are going to be first base calls, and that can be done, that can be done in 30 seconds. There's no need. You can, in other words, the guy in the booth, challenge. A light goes on, I'm challenging the call, he looks at it, he, he has four angles, he can evaluate it in 30, 40 seconds, safer out, done. That's going to take care of the vast majority of the plays, and th- th- that that should be done immediately. Have you ever heard how many people are in New York looking these plays over? I heard four that there are four, four people. Okay, there. the only reason I ask that is because on Saturday in the first game where that that replay went on and on, I turned to Greg Mitchell, our producer, and I said, "You know what? It almost seems like well, there's a call in the Boston Toronto game. We'll get to yours right after this one." That's what it almost seemed like. They were like they were looking at one, and then by the time they'd get done with that one, then we'll go ahead and look at this play. I'm not sure if that's the case or not. Probably isn't. But when it takes that long, I mean, this was over a four-minute delay. Another thing that drives me nuts, Mark, is I saw Clint Hurdle Saturday down in the dugout for Pittsburgh holding his right hand up to the umpire, signifying, wait a second, we're looking at this to see if we want to challenge it. Quite honestly, Mark, sitting there waiting for Clint Hurdle to decide whether or not the challenge is played, I'd rather see him out on the field arguing with the umpire and kicking dirt than well, watch again, him just stand down there holding his hand up. Again, I would not give those those guys, if you just change the rule a bit and say you have the right for three challenges, but you don't have the right to analyze the replay four times before you make that decision. Take your best shot. If you disagree with the ump, you think he missed it, light goes on green. I want to challenge. But but you have to do it before the next pitch. And that will make them think carefully before they waste a challenge. If it's an egregious call, if everybody knows the ump blew it, then you you have to – that's easy. The questionable call is, do you want to risk one of your challenges in 15 seconds or 30 seconds or whatever – then you've got to do it. You're right. Sometimes it takes a minute before, after the play is over for the manager to s- decide whether he wants to, to, to challenge it. And w- what's amazing to me is how many of these, w- what percentage of these challenges are overturned. It's, it's, oh. it's, it's well over 50%. Yes. I mean, that means the umpires are missing 50% of the close calls. What the hell do we have the umpires for? Yeah, I, I agree. And it's almost like some of them out there, Mark, they just make a call just to make a call because they know it's going to be 
reviewed anyway. It's kind of like professional football, college football. Hey, let's let these fumbles go as long as we can because we know we can overturn it when we go to replay anyway. So you're right. Why even bother having them out there if that's what they're relying on? Everybody can make the easy call. <clears throat> the ground ball shortstop, the guy's out by three feet. You don't need a, to be a professional umpire to get that call right. It's the bang-bang call that you have to be good at. And if we're going to challenge every bang-bang call, then you don't need the umps. And, absolutely correct. And the, and the ump, here's the other way to look at it, Dave. The other way to do it, the ump could have in his pocket a, a button, and he automatically, if, if, it, if it's too close to call, he hits the button and says, I'm not sure. Let's, let's look at the replay. And that, that takes it away from the manager to do that. It's an instantaneous, yes, let's challenge this because I'm not sure. And uh, so that, that gets him off the hook. And, and in fairness, I've done some umpiring. There are some calls that, you, that are literally ties, bang, bang, or the human eye cannot pick up you know, a, a millisecond of action to determine that they're out or safe. So that's a human condition, not something against the umpires. So if the umpires said, bang, that, that is a call that needs to be reviewed, then it's, 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 you go right to the guy in the booth. He has the um, advantage of slow-mo, instant replay, and he can say, yes, out or safe. That, that, would, that would speed it up immensely and get the umpires off the hook. Well, then you could always have the case where if an umpire makes a, if a specific umpire makes a call, you just automatically review it. In the case of Angel Hernandez, CB yeah. Buckner, and probably Jim Joyce now. Yeah, and I, I think that is, is, we've talked about this many, many times that the umpires are umping themselves out of positions because they don't get it right most of the time. You know, not most of the time, but on the close calls, they're 50-50. Mark, quickly, thumbs up, thumbs down, Brian Price back next year. Thumbs up. Okay. I, I think he should be. I honestly think he should should be back next year. Mark, the Indians are in the middle of something today that I just think is absolutely ridiculous. This just proves how thin-skinned the Indian players and organization are. They are angry at longtime reporter Paul Hoynes. He's been covering the team, Mark, for over 30 years for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Hoynes he has. And he had an article that came out yesterday morning stating that after the injury to Carrasco, after the injury to Jan Gomes, and with the Salazar situation the way it is, the team's chances in the postseason ended on Saturday with that injury to Carrasco. Now, Jason Kipnis went to Twitter. These players seem to go to Twitter every time something goes against them. They went, he went to Twitter and suggested that Hoynes shouldn't bother covering the team anymore or showing up a progressive field if he's already decided that the Indians have no chance. Now, just by chance, Hoynes wasn't covering the game on Sunday. He wasn't supposed to. He was off that day, and that drew the ire of Trevor Bauer on two separate tweets. The first one said, Hoynes is a complete coward but he'll eat crow in November. Maybe he took Kipnis' advice and won't bother to come back, question mark. And then the second tweet said, hopefully he doesn't come back. No one here has any time for his BS, and no one respects him. He's not welcome here. Now, Hoynes fired back on Twitter yesterday. I wrote what I wrote because that's what I believe. I had a scheduled day off on Sunday, and I took it. I'll be there on Tuesday, meaning 
You want to bring it up to me on Tuesday? Feel free. Now, Mark, this, I think, is much ado about nothing. You are not going to tell me that these players did not sit back and think, oh, boy, Carrasco's out. Wow, this is going to be a tough, tough go for us. And basically, that's what Hoynes' article said on Sunday, that this team probably lost all chance at winning in the postseason with the Carrasco injury. Yeah, you can look at it, the glass is half full. He looked at it as the glass is half empty. But I'm here to tell you, and I want to get into this, this is kind of what got me into this frame of mind tonight anyway. The way the Indians are handled by the media in the town of Cleveland, anytime you say something negative against them, they take it personally because it never happens. Now, down in Cincinnati, it's a little different, isn't it? Well, I think Cincinnati is an enigma. Maybe Kansas City and a few other small, smaller markets. It sounds stupid, but people are nicer down here. They're more polite than other places down here. And what bothers me, living in Chicago for 10 years, Philadelphia for 10 years, Los Angeles, South Florida, the, the, the press is much, much tougher in those cities than you would find here in Cincinnati. And I've, I've always complained that Hal McCoy and other guys, they walk around and they, they don't challenge the, the team. They don't ask the tough questions anymore. You don't have reporters uh, anymore you, you, or, or columnists. You, you have guys who are talking about, you know, what pitch did you hit for that home run? That's, that's not incisive baseball analysis. What I admire are guys who would come in, uh, like some of the, the, the writers up in Philadelphia. I mean, they, they would voice an opinion, and whether you liked it or not, they, they, they had a point of view. Here, it's not that way. I think maybe Cleveland, it, it's a little different, I don't know, but this Hoynes guy who I've not read, I, I don't know what his history is other than 30 years with the, with the Indians, but I bet he harkens back to a day when there was much more opinion being written by writers, uh, beat writers, than, than you have today. The guys that I see here in Cincinnati, they're afraid to challenge the organization, afraid to challenge the players. Uh, you know, I see guys walking to first base on a ground ball to second. I, I never hear them called out on that anymore. Uh, pitchers who, who pitch just stupid baseball, uh, the writers don't challenge that. So, uh, I'm glad to hear a guy up in Cleveland have the guts to do that, and uh, the Indians should have shut their mouth and proven it on the field rather than responding through Twitter. Yeah, I agree. You know, with, with the social media the way it is today, Mark, I mean, players can just shoot right back at somebody. I find that they're really, you're right, there's no longer any reporting on the game. It's more of opinion written by reporters any longer about the game. The only reporting you get on the game is what's done through social media, through Twitter, basically. And that tells you exactly what's happening. Rather than getting a recap of the ball game, you get more of an opinion of the ball game anymore. Well, I don't know, Dave. I, I think the, the problem, as I see it, is that the, the people who are doing – there's a difference between a reporter and a writer. And a reporter basically relays the action of a specific game and what happened. There was a double play in the fourth inning that squelched a rally. Okay, I know that. I can see that. 
but that's what they're reporting on. They're reporting on the game. A writer is doing analysis, I think, behind the scenes. That's how I see it. You know, finding out about a player, talking about a player's motivation, what they did to get where they are, talking about Brian Price's challenges as a manager, not his day-to-day stuff, but, uh, you know, I, I want more in-depth analysis if I read somebody. I don't need to read a, an analysis of the game yesterday. I saw the damn game yesterday. I know what went on. So I want something more than that. And that's what you get in Cincinnati. You get a lot of reporting on the game, and I want analysis of the game. I, I want something deeper than that. Well, and and when I look at the entire media down in Cincinnati, and, and I'll pull up 1530 on my phone, and, and I will purposely listen to Lance McAllister and Moegger because I think they're outstanding radio analysis. I, I like them. I like listening to them on every sport, Mark. I think they're fair with the Reds. I think they're fair with the Bengals. You don't really have a basketball team, and I know there's some problems down there. I'm not quite sure why between Xavier, Cincinnati, and and, and the other schools that are down there, Mark, but I, I don't quite get what, what the problem is down there with that. But that being said, you know, I listen to Mo Egger and I listen to McAllister, and I think they give excellent analysis of the Reds, and I think they talk about the Reds. And when they do it, Mark, how do you take what they say? Is it opinion? Is it analysis? What is it when they talk about the Reds? Well, I think it's informed analysis. And I would add Ken, a guy named Ken Brew, who's been down here for a long time. I really like the way he gets into analyzing a player, a game, an organization, it's more than just the X's and O's. And I think those guys do a good job. I like Lance. Uh, He's smart. He knows what he's talking about. He's always prepared. But he will challenge, and WLW, to their credit, they will challenge the Reds, the organization. And if they make a bad trade or they do something stupid, they don't don't hold back, which which I admire. Uh, the, the print media is completely different now. It, it's it's such uh, a, a disparate group of people who are doing this reporting. Many many of those I, I have read, they simply don't understand the game, and that's what irritates me. So I, I think that the big cities they have guys who are paid a lot of money. They voice an opinion. They back it up. They, they they're not afraid to challenge the organization. Uh, but I think here in Cincinnati, that's the weakness is they don't challenge it, at least the print media, clearly as much as the uh, the radio media does. Well, we've got a guy up here, Adam the Bull, whom I, I think is is a pretty good uh, radio announcer. He's on with Dustin Fox in the afternoon on 92.3. I think he's pretty good, but he's made some comments lately about the Indians, Mark, that has even caused Trevor Bauer to block him on his Twitter account. I mean, if, if players are going to be that soft about it, Mark, then why are you even on social media in the first place? Well, that's the point. I mean, the, the players, let's, let's face it, Dave, baseball players are, are not the most educated, highly intelligent athletes in the world. Uh, most of them have not gone to college uh, and I'm not disparaging people, disparaging people who don't go to college. I'm just saying that they have not been educated on how to respond to that. And this is particularly, 
I, I think the, the younger players, uh, because they're so used to instantaneous response through social media that it, it's an easy way out. And, you know, you, you look at a guy like Joey Votto, who I'm, be, I'm beginning to admire more and more and more as I see this guy play. He is just a great player. But, you know, aside from his, which I think is kind of funny, he, he raised a lot of uh, ire when he would fake giving a ball to a player, to a kid in the stands, like it would be a foul ball, and he'd pretend to throw it to him, then he wouldn't. And he, you know, and he'd be booed. And, but it, it was done, done with some tongue-in-cheek good humor. And, and But, he, you know, he handles it well. And I, I think the younger players could learn from a guy like that. Brandon Phillips is just the opposite. He, he has, I forget how many followers he has on his, his Twitter account, but he's constantly out there. But, you know, and the the other way is he doesn't talk to a lot. He will not talk to Hal McCoy. He won't talk to <laughs> to uh, the other guy down there, the Inquirer reporter, uh, for for things. Rosencrantz? That they, Rosencrantz, because of things they've said or written about him. That's his prerogative. But I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't respond if a guy criticizes you because you threw a 3-2 fastball down the middle of a guy hit 500 feet. That's your fault. And I, I keep my mouth shut and try and pitch better the next time. And that's, you're right. These guys have the means to instantaneously respond, but that's not always in their best interest to do so. Yeah. I mean, you know, Trevor Bauer gets upset at Adam the Bull for saying what he did. He gets upset over Paul Hoynes doing what he did. And yet when Bauer goes out and hits three Tigers in the game on on Sunday, the first place he goes is into the media room, Mark, to make sure that they write down that he's apologizing to the Tigers, that he didn't do it on purpose. So these players have to understand, if they're going to use the media to their advantage, they have to understand that the media is going to use what they say to their advantage also. You know, I think also we, we, two of the Reds, uh, Di Stefani the other day when he pitched so poorly in that first game, and it wasn't really, he didn't pitch awful. Uh, he, he was hurt by a couple of errors, but the, the next day he was interviewed and he said, you know what, I sucked that day and I'm going to come back and do better. You know, it, it was on me. I, I didn't have my stuff. You know, he, he handled it like a pro. And Finnegan was just the opposite. He was, like, defending himself because he threw, oh, I pitched great. Well, you're out in the third inning, and you threw 82 pitches. No, you really didn't pitch great. And he was trying to defend himself, saying, you guys aren't seeing what I, I, I only gave up seven hits. You only pitched two in the third innings, you moron. You, you know, you did not pitch well. You, you, you walked people. You gave up seven hits. Uh, just say, man up and own it and say, hey, it's on me. I screwed up. I didn't pitch well. Let's move on. But too many of these guys are so sensitive, they they won't say that. How do you feel the balance is as far as newspaper and radio between the Reds and the Bengals in Cincinnati, especially when the Reds are winning? I think it's pretty evenly handled. Uh, I, I think that the Bengals, with their newfound success over the last four or five years, are getting a lot of attention, and their their increase in in, in talent and playing and results has been uh, offset by the decrease in in the level of professionalism, I guess, 
with the Reds and the winning of the Reds. The Reds haven't won since 2012. Well, this is the fourth year now of a lousy season. And so there's going to be more. I mean, I, from my perspective, I love baseball. I can't, I couldn't wait for the Bengals to start because I knew they were going to win this year. And I couldn't wait for the season to be over because the Reds stink. Now, will they not stink so much yes, next year? Probably. I think they'll, they'll, they'll be better. But there's not a lot of enthusiasm to watch a doubleheader in Cincinnati when the Reds are, what, 32 games out of first place? I don't know how many people were down there when you were there over the weekend, but I bet it wasn't a lot. Not many. No, th- no, there wasn't. Not, not hardly at all. See, here's my problem with the media in Cleveland, especially sports talk radio. We have got two sports talk stations in Cleveland, full-time sports talk stations, ESPN station and CBS. I know you've at least got one in Cincinnati in 1530. I'm not sure if you've got any others. Do you? Uh, yeah, well, WW, of course. Uh, yeah, but that's not full-time. Not full-time, but they they have a lot of sports that they they, they cover on there. But uh, WCKY, they have some sports, but you're right. There's not a lot of sports, full-time sports radios here in Dayton Station. Yeah, there's, there's two in Cleveland, okay? Now, the Browns stink. Let's just call it a spade a spade. The Browns stink, Mark. I mean, you, you can't get any worse than what the Browns are right now. The Indians are in first place by seven games over Detroit. Their magic number is seven. What are we talking about this morning? How bad the Browns are. Hardly a word about Carlos Carrasco's injury. Hardly a word about how the Indians are basically three days away from clinching the American League Central Division for the first time since 2007. Hardly a word about any playoff situation in Cleveland, we don't talk about the Indians after games. We don't talk about the Indians during games, before games, nothing. Why? When you ask the radio stations that, they'll say there is no interest in the Indians. All they talked about this morning was Josh McCown's injury rather than the first place Cleveland Indians. And when they do talk about baseball, it's something completely off the wall, Mark. One guy on the radio wants extra innings ended. He wants it a home run derby if it goes into extra innings, a lot like what hockey is. Another one talks about needing five starters in the playoffs. The guy obviously has never seen a playoff game in his life. And Terry Francona, obviously, Mark, he's handled differently by the media in Cleveland. They don't hold his feet to the fire because the radio stations and the newspapers don't care. They say it's the fans that don't care. I say the fans would care if the media showed more impetus, which is right. I'm not sure which is right, Dave, because I think it's a subjective of how people evaluate a particular um, sports a particular sport in a particular town. Let, let me throw out some names for you. In Pittsburgh, what do you think is more popular, the Steelers or the Pirates? Steelers right now. Okay. But if the Pirates were winning, I think it's been the Pirates over the last couple of years. I disagree. I, I think if you, if you, if, if you ask 100 people uh, what, what sport is most popular in Pittsburgh, they're going to say the Steelers. I mean, the, the, oh, I, I, that I agree with. Okay, well, I think that is what is the, is manifested from that is the the media follows that. 
they're going to say in Pittsburgh, and I think Cleveland, I think the Browns at one time, I mean, the Browns won several world championships back in the 60s and 70s. I mean, they were in the 50s. I mean, they, 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 that team, uh, at the same time they were ascending, the Indians were descending. So I think that carries over and affects the media. But in Los Angeles, what do you think the big sport is in Los Angeles? Is it the Dodgers? Is it the, now the the Rams? Is it the Lakers? What, what do you think? You know, to right be honest, to... I I don't know who the big deal was out in Los Angeles because they went twenty years without football and didn't care. That's right. The only person that That's cared right. about putting football back in L.A. was Roger Goodell. That's right. So every, if you go to every city, uh, you know, in Kansas City, is it the Chiefs or the Royals? I mean, they're they're both popular. Those teams have both won. So I, I think it. I don't think that there's a predominance of favoritism in, from, from the outside looking into Cleveland. I don't know Cleveland like you do. But I think if Cleveland wins, the Indians win, they're going to get the, the, the requisite press. Now, you and I are baseball fans, so is that ever enough for us? I don't know. If you're a football fan, and, and let's pick uh, the Yankees, okay, Look at New York. To me, the Yankees are the biggest draw in New York of all the sports teams. The Giants, the Jets, the Mets. No, it's it's the Yankees. So that that they're going to get most of the press because I think most of the fans in New York follow the Yankees, <clears throat> their fortunes more than any other. So I think it's a natural it's a natural phenomenon that the press is then going to follow. So if you're saying that. Cleveland is a football town. Well, it makes sense to me that the press is going to pick that up, and they're going to emphasize the the the, the Browns more than the Indians. So, is it over overwhelming? I don't. From the outside looking in, I don't see it. But you might. But I don't think it's it's it clouds the the, the reporting that much. But again, I'm not on the ground like you are. Mark, I, you know, my father has always told me that Cleveland was a Browns town. No doubt about it. That's what they were. And he uses this story very quickly to analyze this. He said that one time he went to the, the ticket booth at Old Municipal Stadium, got four tickets to the ball game that night, and he said, what time does the game start? And the lady behind the, the glass said, what time can you be here? <laughs> and that that is what he says Cleveland is a Browns town. Mark, as I've said throughout the show tonight, I was down at Great American Ballpark this weekend for the first time. I had never been there. I had been at Old Riverfront Stadium a couple of times. I had never been to Great American Ballpark. First of all, I want you to answer a question for me. Where is Great American? They have built up that area so much, I couldn't remember. Where is Great American Ballpark now in conjunction to where Old Riverfront Stadium was. Right next door. The, the, the left field wall uh, <clears throat> was where Great American Ballpark was, uh, the current stadium. So they, they, they actually shared some of the same footings and that kind of thing. So they, they basically rebuilt it on the same site. Uh, it's, it's a little more – It's the, that banks area where all the restaurants and stuff, uh, that yes. used to be just uh, parking areas for Riverfront. Okay. So that's uh, it, it's it's a really comfortable facility I think to to go to. It's I, I've been to most of the major league ballparks and uh, Cincinnati has a right to be proud of that place. It's uh, 
you know, it's clean and it's, uh, the only thing I don't like about it is the, the prices for the food. I think it's outrageous, but people pay it. Yeah, they do. You know, and, and I want to get into that here. You know, I'm going to give my review of Great American Ballpark. I think it's one of the best stadiums I've ever been at. Um, I think it's better than Progressive Field. I thought up to Saturday, Pittsburgh was the best stadium that I had been to, uh, their baseball field. But this stadium that the Reds play in, Mark, Great American Ballpark, I think is one of the finest in America today. There's not a bad seat in the house. Greg and I walked throughout the entire stadium. It's open. You can see the ball field from anywhere you want to walk at. The And what I mean by open is there is a large area for you to get to the concession stand and the seating. And you don't run into people time after time just trying to get to your seats, trying to get to uh, a concession stand, whatever. They've got a a majority of things that you can you can choose from, Mark. They've got pizza. They've got that Montgomery Inn barbecue going on. They've got the uh, the Handlebar Cafe. They've got a way to get to the Jack Casino. Uh, they've got United Dairy Farmers for crying out loud. They basically got a little grocery store in there. They've got so many Reds memorabilia shops and team shops. Now I, I did think, for example, that. The jerseys that they sell, they were they were outlandish as far as the pricing is concerned. For a Reds jersey, the old ones back in 1975-76, which is what I would actually want, you know, to have them at $150, Mark, that, that's a little over the top. Just a simple Reds hat. I would just want a, just a straight Reds hat with the white C insignia. Uh, those were relatively well-priced at about 20 bucks. But they had other hats there that were $55, $60. So, yeah, things were outpriced. But I think for the ambiance of it, Mark, right there on the river, as far as being able to see the ball game and, and from anywhere, I, I think it's an outstanding stadium. I like sitting where you can see the river, too, and walking around and seeing the back of the stadium, see the Ohio River go by. It, it's really a, it is a comfortable place to watch a game. Uh, and I've been, I, I'm thinking as you were chatting uh, about this, that I guess the stadiums I like best, and I think I was at 21 of the stadiums at one time, uh, but I, I like Wrigley Field. I played at Wrigley Field twice, as a matter of fact. I enjoyed that. Uh, now, Wrigley Field in the locker room, I played there 15, 16 years ago. Uh, it was a dump. <laughs> <laughs> I, we were in a visitor's locker room, and it was like being in college. I mean, it was it was just unbelievably bad for a major league facility. I did not go into the Cubs locker room, which I'm sure was much better, but I heard they've redone those things, and it's, you know, when they've added the scoreboards and Wrigley Field and modernized it and spent hundreds of millions of dollars, I guess it's now state-of-the-art. But I, I really enjoyed the, the vibe in that place. And then the other one I really liked was Dodger Stadium. I thought that was just a cool place, the setting there. Uh, different crowd completely in Dodger Stadium as opposed to Wrigley Field. But I've never been to Fenway, and that's the one I, I, I would like to go. I've been to Yankee Stadium and Mets Stadium and all that stuff, but never been to Fenway. Yeah, I'm, I'm just really impressed by the way that they the way that they did Great American Ballpark. And another thing, Mark, it is so clean downtown easy access from the parking lots to the ballpark we were down there during oktoberfest too 
nice people, easy to get to the ballpark, easy to get in, easy to get out. I was just extremely impressed, and I'll, I'll definitely go back next year like you and I were talking. You know, we've got to do a remote from somewhere down near Great American Ballpark. I, I know they'll let us in to the ball games on a press pass, but they won't let us do the show from inside the stadium. So we've got to find a way to, to do one outside the stadium there. But I'll tell you what, there's a lot of room out there to do do a show from out there, Mark. Yeah, we can walk around. We can just walk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and maybe interview some fans down there. That'd be a fun, fun event. And maybe we do the same thing. We'll do a home and away. We'll do Cleveland and do Cincinnati. Yeah, it'd be nice to do it when you know the Reds are playing up here and the Indians are playing down there. But I definitely want to get down there more and watch a game from Great American Ballpark. Mark, as we promised, the the wild card standings right now in the American League, they've got a heck of a race. Baltimore is up a game over Toronto. Those are the two that are in the wild card game so far. Detroit and Seattle are each two games back. They're tied with records of 79 and 70. And Houston is three games back. The Yankees are four games out, Mark. So there's quite a, quite a dogfight going on for the last two wild card spots. In the National League, the Mets are leading by a game over San Francisco and St. Louis is a game back of San Francisco. You know, there was a lot of talk about Terry Collins getting fired as manager of the Mets. You gotta give this guy credit with all the injuries that this team has had, especially to that pitching staff. He's got them in the playoffs, Mark. I know. It's, uh, th- there's been some really good managerial, uh, performances this year that we'll talk about at the end of the year when we do our wrap up. Uh, but you're right. Uh, I, and, and Terry Francona, uh, you know, uh, I, I know you question some of his moves at times, but this guy's a winner. And he does it year in, year out. His teams compete. And that's really all you can ask for. And the Indians have a real good chance to move forward despite the injuries. And I like what he said. You know, he didn't panic. He he said, you know, this makes it more challenging, but we got a good team. So I, I believe him. Mark, we talked about this early in the year. I asked you this question. Is Terry Francona a Hall of Fame manager? I'm going to say right here and now. If he wins with Cleveland this year, the way this is stacked right now, he's a Hall of Fame manager. Well, clearly he's, you know, he's he's got a resume that's being improved every year by what he does, whether it's with Cleveland or Boston, whomever. Uh, so yeah, I think this guy has the credentials, but uh, he he's a relatively young guy too, so he's going to be around for a number of years to to build up that resume, but. I think right now, you, I agree with you. Okay, now, we're, we're obviously spending more time on the Indians because they're in first place. Their magic number is, is seven. They are off tonight. This will be the last off day that the Indians have, too, Mark, for the rest of the regular season. They are playing at home tomorrow night against Kansas City. They've got the Royals for a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday set. They've got the White Sox coming in this weekend. Friday, Saturday, Sunday afternoon, and then next week, when we come back on the show next week, the Indians will be playing at Detroit. That's going to be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday afternoon. It's my hope the Indians are going to have the division clinched by then. Well, I I agree with you, and I hope that that is the case. They're a good team, and for the Indian fans out there, you you know, the Carrasco thing is certainly disappointing, but uh, I would not throw in the towel by any stretch of the imagination. 
you know, as far as the Reds are concerned, they're playing the Cubs tonight. They've got them tomorrow and Wednesday, and then they're off Thursday, which is also their last off day for the rest of the regular season. And, and then they go to Milwaukee. Any chance that they can overtake Milwaukee? I don't think so. I think, I mean, honestly, Dave, with the pitching staff and the condition it is in, I think they have an 11, what, a 10-game road trip coming up. Uh, this team may not win more than two or three games the rest of the year. So uh, I think it's going to be a disappointing finish to this. Uh, it might impact Ryan Price, but with the pitching staff, and they, they play the Cubs, what, seven times, I think, in the next, yeah. uh, in the next two weeks. So uh, not a lot to look forward to if you're a Reds fan. The only advantage is the Cubs aren't playing for anything right now. They've get, they've basically got everything wrapped up. They do. So, all right, we'll talk to you again next Monday night, Mark. Have a good one, Dave. That's going to do it for tonight's show. Don't forget, coming up on Friday night, we've got high school football for you here on UltimateSportsTalk.com. That will be Chippewa at Waynedale. Game time at seven o'clock. Pre-game show at. 6.30, Golden Bear Rewind at 6 o'clock. And Mark and I will be back again next Monday night at 9 o'clock with another Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell for producing this evening's show, but most of all, our thanks to you for listening. For Mark Donahue, I'm Dave Mitchell. Until next Monday night at 9, have a good week, everybody, and go Tribe. The Wiz Kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Klazuski.